Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to Twins Talk Theater. Today, we are interviewing Glenn Michael Baker. I met Glenn doing props at East West Players Allegiance, or I guess it was a co-production between East West Players and the Japanese American Cultural Community Center. Uh, Glenn was the prop master, and from the first day I met him, I was like, ooh, I like this guy. And then there was a lot of text messages between production meetings and tech rehearsals and (laughs) everything like that. So Glenn is joining us today. He is a freelance set designer and prop designer and has done things all over Southern California from Universal Studios to East West Players to, uh, I don't know, probably all kinds of stuff, which will come up in the podcast. So welcome, Glenn. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> be here. You're in, where are you, in, in Hollywood today? Right now I'm up in Burbank at my, at my abode. You're Burbank. Cindy's over in Omaha, and I'm in uh, Long Beach. So yeah, spread out across the areas. Uh so yeah, how did you get into theater? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I did theater in high school um, and, of course, thought I was about to be an actor. Uh, <laughs> we can all imagine how well that panned out. Um, so I never really knew what I wanted to go to school for, um, but I was a ballet dancer for a really long time. Um, so I ended up just turning that into kind of a main path to pursue. Uh, went to school for dance, and at UCI, they make you do shop units. Uh, all the dancers have to do uh, theater shop units as well, uh, and you get to pick wow. your department. Um, the prop shop actually has like an application because it's so small, um, and they only want people who can actually do th- do stuff. Um, <laughs> actually build props? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I consider myself reasonably crafty, so I put my name in, um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, from that, they very graciously allowed me to take a lot of the grad, uh, scenic classes. Um, and through that, I met a lot of people who kind of through jobs kind of got me to a place where I can consider this my path. Um, and I never really looked back. I, I graduated with a dance major, but you know, this is what I do. So. (laughs) So did you start dance in high school or were you dancing well before that? No, I've been dancing since I was like four years old. I'm one of those. Yeah, I'm one of those people. It seems like dancers <laughs> do start really young and, and the rest of theater people don't usually start until a little later. It's, well, performers, yeah. I feel like, just performers in general, I feel start early. Yeah, especially because, I mean, it most often comes about like, you know, mom wants little little Glenn to be in a recital and then, you know, it goes from there. Right. Yeah, you either get you get put in something. We were put in uh, baseball for two years and hated it. We were put in soccer for like five or six years. We actually liked soccer, uh, but then we yeah. stopped because they just got too competitive. Like we were in high school and they were like, "Oh, you missed a goal, the end of the world," and we're like, "Yeah, not important at all." Yeah, we were in swimming for a year or two. Then we found theater and choir <laughs> and been stuck in theater. I remember, and they they sent us to a few of those like. What were those weird classes that they kept sending us to that were like, how to be a girl? Oh, oh yeah, we were sent to one of those. Uh, yeah. yeah, like how to like pick up something off the floor. Like you don't just bend at your waist, you're supposed to bend at your knees. And 
And yeah. I guess they taught us how like, to do that. Why the hell did they do that to us? We should ask mom and dad why they did that to us. Well, it didn't work because we don't even remember what it was. But it was only like, you know, at the local YMCA <laughs> or whatever. And we did one or two. I mean, I'd be better at makeup now, apparently, if I'd remember that. <laughs> but I do remember how to bend over and pick up something off the floor. Bend at the knees, not at the hips. And that's all that matters, you know? <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. So we did learn something. Uh <laughs> But yeah, parents are, I guess it's good because otherwise, how do kids know what they want to do if you don't send them to all kinds of things? Otherwise, they just sit home. And now we know the basic rules of baseball and how to play soccer and we're pretty decent swimmers and you got in theater. (laughs) We are And Stacey can bend over and pick up something off the floor, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) So do you miss performing and being in ballet and dance at all? I do... I, when I, you know, when I moved down here, I convinced myself that, oh, I'm going to take classes and keep up with it and mm-hmm, yada, yeah. yada, yada. And then uh, we all know how demanding theater life actually turns out to be. <laughs> yeah. So that has fallen by the wayside, unfortunately. Um, do I miss being on stage? Yes, completely. But I like this so much more. Uh, it's more rewarding in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially with dance, you're never able to see what you've done because True. i mean uh, filming, oh, good point filming dance doesn't really translate um and to have something physical that i make and is able to be like yes this is mine is a very rewarding gratifying feeling um, a, yeah i feel that too that you you start the process with a script and then at the end you have like a physical set and physical props and a show that people are watching that you created and you're like, da-da, exactly. these are my props. Look how pretty it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that anyone should notice, ever, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we always do, us theater people. So I have, I have two questions. Yeah. One, you said when I moved down here. So where did you come from? I am from the Bay Area, uh, ah, okay. specifically the East Bay. So Oakland adjacent. It's way easier to tell people that I'm from Oakland. Then, uh, yeah. But I'm from right. like a little small town called Castro Valley. Oh no! Well, I mean, I went to school up in Stockton, so I am familiar oh, with Castro cool. Valley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The so land when did of old people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yes. When did you move down to LA? Did you like go to college up there and then move down? I went to UCI for school, uh, so down in Irvine. Right. And through that, kind of just stayed my way around Los Angeles. Um, spent a year out of school up there just raising money um, mm-hmm. and made the plunge down here in, oh God, it's been like, it's been almost three years. That's crazy. Wow. I, <laughs> Look at that. Full-time theater work for three years. <laughs> it is so bizarre to say that. It feels like I just moved down here last year. It really does. Right. Well, I've been in New York for almost 10 years now. And when people ask, you know, you're like, I don't know, like four or five years. And I'm like, Oh, no, wait, it's been literally 10 years. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. So, <laughs> next thing you know, you're going you're gonna to be doing the same thing. You're like, oh, no, I really have been here forever. <laughs> <laughs> so then my, my second question is, when you prop a show, how often are you actually on crew for the show? Or are you, do you ever do run crew with the show when it's your own props? Or do you mostly like come in beforehand? Because I've worked in many theaters where it, it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah, I actually had never done that before Allegiance. You um, never actually ran the, the shows? Yeah, and oh, that was wow. a fascinating experience. Um, 
just because, I mean, I've done assorted like run crew stuff, but I've never been on yeah. rail or never been like, yeah, I've, I've never been like pseudo assistant PA stage manager kind of dealio, which was the case on Allegiance. It was not, it was a very nebulous position. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yes, most so positions were, were like, there and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like, yeah, you're the I'm Emmy, but you're going to be on rail. And then sometimes when Glenn's busy, you're going to help do props, but your title's Emmy, which is what we did to Brandon. Um, yeah, I think wow. you were on rail a couple times too, huh, as props? Yeah, it's it's been interesting. But yeah, for the, for the vast majority of shows, um, I just prop and then opening night happens and I'm out, um, which is freeing but also you know it's it's nice to stay with a show i've never been as connected to actors especially as i was on allegiance well Uh, allegiance ran for so many weeks so i feel like you just get so comfortable with each other whereas when you just come in and tech and do the show and leave you know it's a completely different experience exactly and you know you try to force that as much as possible because i'm always trying to like expand who who you know and da 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 but with the much longer time period it's way easier so yeah, yeah, exactly. They're rewarding. Yeah. yeah, I feel like the I obviously just teched and then was like, bye, I'm reading the rehearsal and performance reports. Um, but during strike and during just watching everybody on Instagram and Facebook, everybody seemed really nice and cool backstage. And uh, even during the strike and restore, people were, you know, costumes stopped by and were saying hi to the deck crew and asking how things were going and willing to work with each other. And I was like, oh, nice. Most of the people here were were pretty friendly and nice to work with. I agree. I think this show, especially more so than anything I've ever worked on, was like a cross-departmental, like, we're all in this together kind of feeling. Like a big Uh, family. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I feel like that comes from the sheer challenge of mounting allegiance under our circumstances um, and all of the stuff that came with that. We were really all put, not through the ringer, but, you know, there were various challenges that we needed each other to solve. And I think that shared kind of struggle really helped us uh get closer yeah i know you brought in some friends uh you're making wishes for it seems like forever <laughs> anyone did. sees pictures <laughs> the, there's a song about wishes and there's a whole backdrop of wishes and uh different times glenn would just bring in random people and be like this is my friend so-and-so he's gonna sit here for three hours and sew wishes to this drink <laughs> and i'd be like great perfect <laughs> oh i bribed them with so much ramen Uh, (laughs) that was great well i've been Uh, talking to cricket who was your guys the sound designer on allegiance is now my sound designer in omaha and uh, apparently she bribes she bribes people with um bottles of tequila so you know that's much better yeah Yeah, i like ramen ramen over tequila tequila. you know if it's sake i'm all there for sake (laughs) um definitely we've i've definitely bought mochi for people so uh you know any way you can get help (laughs) it's very good And it's funny you mentioned that because I never really, I'm very, very loath to accept help in my shows just because I'm so, so goddamn particular that I just, just, there's only a few people that I really fully trust to do things, you know, the right way the first time because so often I have people help me and then I'll need to go back and basically redo everything they did. Um, Not to, you know, crap on other people's work. It's, I just have a very high standard, um, and it's easier to do things myself than, than ask for help. Um, so I'm trying to learn how to let a lot of that go, uh, just because it really is, you know, it's just theater, and I need to really let the, let the help in. 
Yeah, especially since at some points I was even helping sew wishes because I was like, well, I can't do anything for the next couple hours because I'm waiting for lights to get off stage. I'll sit down and sew yeah. wishes or something. So. Exactly. Everyone. The, Everyone the process, for those of you who are listening, is basically they were like ropes um, and then individual paper wishes were stitched on um, like in the thousands. It was rather extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and Did you hand stitch them all on? So just yeah. like a whip stitch to exactly. the rope? Ah, and that was okay. actually the fastest and most secure way. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it that way. Um, uh-huh. But because we wanted the movement of them as they dropped in and everything, we couldn't just glue them and stick them on there. So, no, it looks cool when they came in. Like, thank you. I mean, I knew what to expect because Stacey was For sending that me two pictures. That they're visible. Yeah. Well, <laughs> One song. I feel like that's so many shows though. Like all the time, and I mean, Stacey and I both started out in props, but all the time, like you're super stressed about this like one prop that has to be perfect, and it's this huge thing, and you spend hours and hours doing it, and then you're like, that's it. It's on stage for 20 seconds. That's yeah. it. That's all you get to see it. So. Exactly. Yeah. Show. Well, I was, I was talking to uh, some friends that I brought to see the show. And uh, I know there was a huge discussion in Allegiance about when they burn the draft cards. Is it real fire? Is it not real fire? Is it in a bowl? Is how are they going to put it out? It ended up being in one of the, what is it, like 55-gallon drum barrels with lights drum, inside yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even after being through all of that and listening to all of that, I missed it the first run through I watched. Because <laughs> the scene that's happening is on stage left. And then these three guys are on stage right for like 30 seconds, half behind, behind a, a portal. Behind a screen, yeah. So then at the end of the show, I was like, where was the stupid drum and the lights? Like, what happened? Did it actually work? And it wasn't until the second run through I watched where... I knew the scene was coming up, so I was, like, looking everywhere for it, and I finally watched it, but I was, like, all that time trying to figure out if it was real fire or not and getting the drum, and I know you had to, like, clean it and then sand it and make sure there was no rough edges for actors to catch on, (laughs) and then then I missed it. (laughs) Yeah, that prop was the the big wah-wah, um... In, in my head, at least, because we had to get the drum. It was still full of, you know, oil residue. So we had to clean all of that out, uh, somehow separate the top off of it. That's not easy, by the way. All the- <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for Dave, who spent like an hour basically drilling perforations into it. And then we just took a sledgehammer to it. Um <laughs> But thank God for Brandon and Karen. They were able to rig up some lights in it and we didn't. Part of me wishes okay. that we, you know, lit the draft card on stage, but with a wood floor and a whole set made of scrim, that, you know, was a little worrisome. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was all done with lights? Because I it, do remember yeah. that scene. I did not miss it, unlike Stacey. I saw what was going on. Yeah, I probably um, was like, this is a scene, look, stage right. Oh, yeah. maybe that maybe that was it. <laughs> I did have you sitting next to me. But <laughs> I thought it looked really cool. So, you know, congrats. That was... Well, good. that's all that matters (laughs) what was that probably one of your more difficult well i guess you just said two difficult props on that show but what what do you think would be your the most difficult prop on allegiance that you had the oil barrel was the most frustrating one because every every time we completed one thing of it another you just like fake something else Yeah. yeah um but definitely the one that took the most time was the wishes we had everyone on that you know, Stacy was working on it. Cricket was working on it while yeah. she was like sound mixing in the house. Yeah, um, Cricket sewed on a bunch of them. Doing it. I had spot operators doing it. 
Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a whole thing. Um, but it looked gorgeous. Uh, I did. Say's vision for that had been constant from the very beginning. So it, it was a really good look. And then um, lighting even wired in individual like LEDs that would sparkle throughout it. So then we also had to, you know, worry about those working and facing forward and plugging that in. And yeah, huh. it looks so and nice every, on stage, but it every was a big one. So another LED would burn out at <laughs> every time. Yep, there was, was lots of reports on those. Like, um, <laughs> there used to be a light here and it's not working. It's like, yeah, it's covered by paper. You have thousands of pieces of paper attached to this thing. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, the prop that bugged me the most was definitely the phones. Um, there's a scene where two characters go to stage right and stage left extreme where there are two kind of wavy projection screens and they pluck the oh, phone yeah, yeah. It, and they walk back on stage with it. Um, that scene really needed retractile cords, uh, which, you know, they were invented in 1937 or 39. I can't remember which, but they probably weren't in much use. So really that cord should have been um, a braided cord. Uh, and I, you know, no review mentioned it, but one reviewer came and then made a, a public Facebook post with a 1940s phone uh, and a refractor oh, no. to it and said, what's wrong with this picture? And so that's the one that sticks in my craw that I wasn't able well, to. Really? Have. Out of the whole show and that's what you're paying attention to, reviewer? Wow. No, I, you know, I, I get it. Because if you, if you notice it one place, you notice it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and those those cords are so ubiqu- ubiquitous that you don't think about it. Certainly, I did not. Um, yeah. Another another prop like that was the IV uh, the IV pole uh, with a little saline bag uh-huh. attached. Mm-hmm. Um, for previews, we had a plastic bag on that pole because they need to dance with it, and it was just you know easier, better, safer for everyone. Um, until a patron, actually an old army veteran, uh, came up to Allison at intermission and told her that, you know, plastic wasn't around at that time. So it really should be mm. a glass bottle. Um, and that happened like third preview. So because of that, I was horrified that everyone in the audience would know that. Uh, <laughs> especially the people that went through this war. So we had we had to change it. I had to change it. So that was the I think it <laughs> I think it got changed like one day before we opened. It was <laughs> It was one of those like last minute additions. Thank God our actors are flexible and accommodating. Um, that was like my last last hurrah. Did it change the blocking at all? I mean, they still danced around with it on stage, or was it just like, don't it move as fast? Worked, it all worked perfect, but every time that they took that thing out and they like tossed it up into the air, I was like, my my heart stopped that it was gonna sh- <laughs> this was gonna be the day that it shattered. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because she puts the jacket on it, she took the jacket off, they danced with it. Like, there was a number of ways they could have knocked it on the ground. Yeah. I hate putting glass on stage, but nothing looks like it. And nothing... Yeah, yeah. nothing sounds like it. When you try to clink glasses together, plastic just doesn't clink the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I have had that fight with directors so much. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll use plastic wherever I can, but I'm, I'm so of the opinion that the real thing is always better. 
I've tried yeah. to even do like uh, glue on the glass bottles so that if they break, they don't shatter or gesso on the bottles so they still clink. Mm-hmm. But if they break, then they stay together. And that takes so long to dry. And yep. yeah, there's, there's actually something. a flexible clear coating that you can spray on too. But then oh. you don't get the, the clink and it's not food safe. So yeah, so then you can't eat you, your drink out of it. Right. You get one thing, but you create three more problems. Yeah, things that common people don't pay attention to, except for a couple, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> the beta, the rest well, of the like popcorn existed. It's, it's period, but you guys had so many people come to the show that actually lived through it or, you know, that were closely related to it. It's not like period in the 1800s where no one, unless they're like an enthusiast, knows what's going on. But they actually grew up living this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Definitely. This show in particular was actually way more stressful for me than most. Because of that reason, you know, I mean, we had people in our audience that were at these camps, you know, yeah. so it's very intimidating to be telling someone their own life story mm-hmm. uh, because yeah. if it's not right. Then, you know, they they know and then they start questioning the rest of the production. Uh, so it really, yeah, that, that was that was a nerve wracking one. And that was why I took that whole IV thing and the phone thing so seriously, uh, mm-hmm. especially because, yeah. Yeah. In that in that neighborhood, it was very, very important for me to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. Um, we weren't just doing the show anywhere. We were doing it in Little Tokyo. Exactly. And it was done by the yeah. Japanese American Cultural Community Center. Every single performance had Japanese Americans who had been in concentration camps. So yes. that was a big yeah. deal. And honestly, to be, you know, a white man working on this show, I felt an extra duty to be extremely respectful and accurate uh, because so often, you know, these kind of like stories about other ethnicities get told by entirely white staffs. And if details are wrong, no one catches it. Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, you know, the, the pressure is on. So right. particularly East West players, I really feel an additional responsibility to tell these stories accurately. So that's a good how early in the process were you brought onto this? Um, you know, like weeks before rehearsal started, did you have a lot of conversations with the director or the scenic designer going into it? You know, kind of like what, what was your process as a, as a props artist for the show? I have had the great benefit of being semi-resident at East West Players, for lack of a better term. Um, I've done their past oh, awesome. five productions. Um, their previous prop master was a wonderful, talented man named Mr. Takamoto, who is now in his 80s, I think. Um, widely beloved by everyone. Still comes to all the shows. Um, and he's, That's awesome. he's great. Uh, but I happen to be the person that they hired for the show that he left just before. Um, so it's been very, very lucky, convenient, you know, fated, whatever you want to call it, that I've been mm-hmm. able to work for for east west as in the capacity that i have um but i was so because of that i was just considered from the beginning to be the prop person um and because of that as soon as the scenic designer was brought on we were able to start talking um and sehuno is a fabulous designer um has a very very clear concise vision uh and has from the very beginning actually that's not to say that the design hasn't changed and undergone actually very significant changes, um, but it was very concrete from the very beginning. So it was easy to kind of follow that and support that uh, adequately. 
he also had, when I was brought on, Say had already come up with all of his drawings. In fact, it was already being sent to Pasadena Playhouse to be built. So I, you know, as TD was brought on fairly late, but one of the first people I met was Say and Glenn at the theater, and all of us were trying to figure out how to move around line sets <laughs> oh, to I get things to fit. Because, <laughs> you know, every line set's being used. And then when the director says, oh, well, can I have this box three feet farther back? And it's like, uh, well, yes, but that means we have to change five more line sets, which means the design changes for every scene, which means you lose stuff on this side. And so, yeah, we were sitting on the ground and like Glenn had his computer out and Say had his computer out. And I had like a tape measure and we were like, okay, if we move this here and we add this here. Yeah, and it was still wrong. We still had those boxes hitting everything during the actual show. So, well, most of the box hitting was because of the air. It, the, yeah, the show wiggling. tolerances in the fly rail were so tight that if the air conditioning was turned on at any point during the night, um, the scrim would hit the boxes, and the boxes would hit the the electrics. Mm-hmm. So there were a so, number of shows where the air was accidentally turned on in intermission, and then we had massive fly issues um, until we could get them to turn it off. So we're up there with sticks at intermission, guiding the scrim down so it doesn't hit anything. It, it was it was a whole process. Yeah. Aratani is a beautiful theater with its own unique challenges. <laughs> Every theater has their own unique, yeah. unique things going on with it. Yeah. So is this your first time working with, with the scenic designer? Yes. Yes. I've wanted to actually for the past year. Um, and I wanted to even more so. I saw his design. I didn't get to see the show, unfortunately. But his design for... Uh, a Doll's House Part 2 is one of the most beautiful scenic designs that I've ever personally seen. Um, and what it is, it's just this, essentially you're in the room of a dollhouse. It's just this mm-hmm. massive, massive living room wall with, a, uh, I think, a single door in the center or two doors. I forget exactly what it is, but it's very stark and like extremely strong, simple, clean, clear. Um, and I strive for that in my the the few scenic designs that I've done, um, especially for dance, have followed kind of that. So it was exciting to work with someone who shared that aesthetic. So there, you guys never really like clashed as far as what what you thought needed to happen for the show. Because I love it when people work together, but sometimes you have such strong designers, and you know it's like I see this as being stark, and they're like, "Why well, was really seeing frills over here?" But <laughs> no, it it was actually a wonderful process. Um, Everyone was extremely accommodating and uh, very willing to help out with changes. The one thing that we butted heads on, uh, say, Snehal and I, were the color of the wishes. Um, that went around and around a lot, too. Snehal, by yeah, the way, was the totally it was director. It like red, white, and blue. Then it was all white. Then it was all color. Um, and so I made them all white. And halfway through making them all white, we decided we wanted color in them. Um, but not so luck. It was like... A bit of a fit. <laughs> It wasn't all, it was like pastel cream colors with the whites, right? Yeah. And then later uh, it was added uh, tissue paper yeah. with multi-brighter colors. It, yeah, always changed. Exactly. So in previews week, I was at Party City buying crepe paper to stick up there. The The finished look, honestly, is gorgeous. Um, and I completely think it's the right decision. Um, initially, that was decided because all of the white wishes looked rather extremely like the luggage t- or excuse me not luggage uh the identification tags on the the internees oh. so we were and because people know that they're going to see that later in the show we didn't want to have that happen in the first scene 
Um, so I think adding the color really kind of helps you separate that, that image from your mind. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That, that was the reason for the color. <laughs> I was just thinking, when I was in Japan, I think most of the wishes we saw were just white. But then in Little Tokyo, they're different colors. Uh, yeah, the the ultimate problem was that across the street from the theater, there was a tree with a bunch of those wishes on it, um, and they were all in neon. Um, naturally, you know, in the forties, neon paper was not, you know, a thing. Mm -hmm. So, what would it have been at the time? You know, who knows? Uh, but <laughs> it's definitely difficult to try to fight for something when you walk out the front door and see something that is arguing against your point. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Granted, they were in well, Salinas yeah. in 1940, so yeah, probably not neon paper. Probably just probably white not. paper, whatever they could get. And it probably wasn't even like stark white paper. It was probably like the tan-colored paper because they were farmers in Salinas. So it's it. It brings up an interesting discussion of like what actually, you know, how real do you want to go? Because there is a point in the production where you say, okay, we can't have that because it works against the theatricality of the piece or it, and you know, this is a larger discussion in props. Uh, at some point the theater has to take over from history. Um, and what point that is differs from show to show to show. Um, so this one was a very interesting one in particular, as you said, because the history is relatively recent. Uh, and people mm -hmm. remember it. Yeah, and also the the props and the costumes were very realistic, but the set itself was completely not realistic. Yes, and that was the plan from the beginning, is to really just provide an environment for these things to live in. Um, actually, there were the initial plan was to have a lot more physical furniture and dressing and all of that. Uh, just to really lock in sense of time and place. And gradually we just kept cutting things one by one as we figured out that we didn't need it. Um, and that happens, you know, often, but in Allegiance, it was rather extreme. Uh, but we ended up with only a handful of hand props, uh, mostly just paper props, really. That was the, that was the, the biggest thing. Yeah, I did love the, any the newspapers and the... Was it the Time magazine or the cover of the Life magazine Mesh. that his face was on? That was awesome. The newspapers are great. The um, was it the it wasn't the draft paper that they turned it into a flower. It was the census thingy that everybody had to fill out, or the um, yeah. the questionnaire, the questionnaire, right? That got turned into a flower. So yeah, those were all really cool. But I just I love paper products because I know you can do so much with them, and right. they're they're the most fun for me, just because you can spend hours on them making them look perfect. And right. really, all it's for is for the actors. Um, yeah. And I will spend hours making a, a cough syrup label just so that they can Connect fully with it. feel supported in their in their action. I, I really feel like it makes a difference. You know, if your letter is just a series of scribbles versus it actually is the marriage proposal that you're reading, I, I think it really, really makes a difference. Um, yeah. And a whole bunch of prop designers actually don't feel that way. It's as long as it looks okay from the audience, it's good enough. But I think half the role of a props designer is, is to support the actors themselves. Uh, um, I was just telling someone the other day, uh, Facebook and all, you look up anything online and it pops up as an ad on Facebook or whatever, you know. Um, I was <laughs> doing a, I was doing props for, uh, it, 
is a British farce. No sex, please. We're British. And it <laughs> calls for a box full of porn postcards. So oh I God. spent hours online at work looking up 1960s porn postcards uh, <laughs> to make props. <laughs> <laughs> And they had to be double-sided because you didn't want, you know, a bunch of, they fall over the stage and I didn't want a bunch of just white cards everywhere. So I had hundreds of half-naked women jumping on trampolines and stuff uh, <laughs> all over my <laughs> my internet and printing out props and trying to explain to people, no, no, this is for a show, you know, gluing them together so they're double-sided and all that. And the actors thought it was hilarious and the couple people who actually saw them on stage thought it was great. But it yeah, was definitely no one sees it in France. Absolutely no one. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're in the first row or two, you can't tell. So it doesn't really matter. But but I was like, I can't just have like a regular postcard from like Long Beach, because obviously that's not right. So it's <laughs> exactly. definitely something <laughs> I learned a lot those, about, you know, those that kind stuff. of ephemeral props too tend to be the hardest to find research for. Um like what did old bus tickets look like and you know invitations and da, 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 that kind of you know gum wrappers stuff that was thrown away and not really archived um, because they're the paper products, products. Yeah. so they just like disintegrate or fall apart so and there's no yeah. record um so half the time you know you you can't find anything um and that is one of the few instances where I'll go to the library first uh because Shockingly, you can find a, books that are just collections of stuff like that, you know, porn postcards or, you know, mm -hmm. smut little booklets from the 40s. Or huh. um, I found one that was just descriptions of prostitutes in Weimar, Germany for cabaret. It was, <laughs> you know, Useful. great. Yeah. Um, so libraries still definitely serve a purpose, at least in prop research. Um, <laughs> I hate saying it like that as as if they're completely defunct. but um honestly the the majority of my job happens through amazon <laughs> yeah google Rather searches um you I'm, should see the targeted ads that i get oh my god <laughs> <laughs> they they never know because one day i'm buying plywood one day i'm looking up 15s porn the next day i'm buying baby gear and they're like what the exactly. hell is this person doing <laughs> With like dolls of asian babies and also pistols and holsters and also hard hats <laughs> And it just goes on and on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We are out there just to confuse Google and Facebook and all of the search engines exactly. trying to target us for anything. Privacy leak because they have no idea who I am. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, what so what has also... been your favorite? We, we kind of talked about this with a, another friend of mine who does a lot of props. But like, do you have a really awesome prop story like of something that you had to get that was just crazy or something that you had to make that was just like out there crazy ridiculous uh, or yes there are so many stories like <laughs> so, that, that i do feel like every props person has just <laughs> millions of them yeah um it's funny mr takamoto's story used to be about um this duck for pippin that was covered in that was like this magical silver duck uh and he eventually had to take an rc car and put a duck decoy over it uh, and then drive it around the stage. <laughs> uh, I've done that with a mouse. Attached yeah. a mouse or a rat to an RC car so that I could control it. Yeah. 
my like hail Mary moment was definitely, uh, I was working on Stuart little, uh, out in Rancho Cucamonga and they needed, you know, it was for the boat race. So initially it was two model boats and with about four days to go before, uh, I think, I think it was four days before opening. They decided they wanted an actual boat, uh, a costume like piece boat. Um, and the so like the person job- would run around on stage and look like they're riding a boat. Yes. Essentially ah. it was like those, um, Oh, I don't even know how to describe it. Basically just something that you, that you would wear. We ended up making it out of foam and PVC and a whole lot of prayers, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it worked and it looked gorgeous. Uh, but that was definitely the like down to the wire one. Uh, Cause that was something that I was built. There's a parking lot next to my apartment. Um, and the only space that was big enough to work in was that uh, parking lot. So cue me at four in the morning, you know, spray painting this boat out there. <laughs> Cops right by. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, this is this is my job. Have to explain the whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> me and the local police know each other very well. <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing. Nothing other. Nothing super crazy sticks out to me. Um, but I mean, every every show presents its own unique challenges like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the light up birthday cake for next to normal was a personal favorite accomplishment because um, she has to blow out the candles on stage. Um, so that involved wiring up a whole lot of fairy lights in there and making them twinkle just right, and putting spackle in a piping bag and making the I cake have, look full. I've made a couple cakes out of spackle and foam. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things to do. My friend is working on um, the cake in Chicago right now, uh, which just was at the Echo Theater Company. Uh, and apparently they're having some some cake issues. Uh, and so <laughs> it was considered that I would make some cakes and mail them. But unfortunately, that did not material. <laughs> <laughs> or rather, fortunately, that did not material. <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I... Go on. I've, uh, my, our cousin, uh, got, she went to date, I forget the name of it. Anyway, she's a pastry chef. And so I've mm-hmm. actually worked on wedding cakes with her. And I'm like, this is just like when I spackle holes in a wall. She's like, not really. Yep. I was like, no, really. Frosting is a lot like spackle. So then when I have to make <laughs> fake cakes, I'm like, well, I already know how to make a real cake. So I'm just going to make it <laughs> fake. And I know how to do frosting and I know how to do the cool designs and all that. I just do it out of spackle so that it dries hard and I don't have to worry about ants. Exactly. Exactly. It's way easier to approach prop making from the real thing uh, instead of trying to work backwards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just substituting things as necessary. I think it just gets you a, a much better result no matter what you're doing. Yeah. For Into the Woods, I try. I had to make all the, you know, the baker has to have an entire bake shop. And so oh I was trying God, to figure out how to make that stuff. And then eventually I just found a recipe for the the salt, salt bread. Dough. Yeah. And I made <laughs> piles and piles of pies and cakes and pretzels and cookies. And they were heavy because that stuff is oh. dense. But it cooked the best and it actually looked real. And I didn't have to worry about trying to paint it. I just had to put like a glaze on it so that it would stay good. And yeah, I they have like a whole box of faked food now that... <laughs> that I actually was in the kitchen forever, like buying pounds and pounds of salt and flour to make. Yeah. That's hysterical. You, the into the woods reminds me the first prop I ever had to make, uh, was 
our production of Into the Woods at UCI uh, was absolutely gorgeous. The whole conceit was that it was a storybook. Like the set was all flat 2D paper planes. That's cool. Um, it was it was gorgeous, but it extended to all of the props as well. Um, everything was like 2D essentially. Um, so we had our the people running the scene change. It was actually very clever. The people running the scene change were like forest nymph elf kind of characters um <laughs> but they all had an associated like animal with them so one person was like covered in like 2d birds and someone like had a fox or whatever and someone had an owl uh on a pole but the owl had to be made you know in a 2d fashion so instead of just doing a flat little thing they wanted it to be made do you remember those wooden like dinosaur puzzles that oh, slot together together yeah yeah, so we made it like that. So we had to basically reverse engineer this owl. Um, <laughs> and it's it's still one of the most challenging props I've ever had to make. And it was the first one that I've ever had to make. <laughs> oh, it's all good. <laughs> so it got tossed into the deep end a little bit on that one. But it worked and it was beautiful. And I'm still doing it now. So I mean, sink or swim. And you obviously swam. So I guess <laughs> you just keep on swimming. <laughs> it's amazing. So you... you no, my turn. Yeah, I You've already mentioned in props, because you just told us about a costume piece that you had to build. And then the very next thing you talked about was something that you wired. Do you, did you have these skills when you started doing props? Or did you like figure out how the hell to, to wire fairy lights into a birthday cake? It is always, you know, figure it out as you go. And every show presents a new challenge that I have to learn some, some little skill for. Mm -hmm. uh, so this show, what was it for this show? Uh, goodness, I can't remember offhand. But yeah, you know, soldering or, you know, sewing was sewing was something that I've always done. Uh, but definitely I've gotten way better at it because of having to make curtains and stuff for, for sets. So many because ideas. it's so much easier to just make a curtain in the exact fabric that you want than hunt down one that's perfect. Plus right. then it's and never the right, the right size. size. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, definitely all of these skills just kind of crop up and it's, you know, it's stuff that you'll never use again. You know, you only need to make that light up birthday cake once. It's <laughs> so. true. But now you know how to like wire it or how to do something like that. Next time you need something yeah. to glow on stage. Definitely. But you're, you're totally right that every, every show presents a new little task like that. Or you had to learn uh, the history. Like, now you know way more about Japanese-American history during that time period. <laughs> than, I certainly uh, do. I remember the that, broom came uh, up. They didn't like yeah. the style of the broom that you got because they thought it was too Korean and not Japanese enough. <laughs> and you're like, I, nope, I did research on that. That's always a frustrating thing. Um, yeah, I... That that was that was frustrating, honestly, because I I do do a lot of research before I put things you know on stage. The vast majority of the time, especially if it's a culturally sensitive prop like that, um, and you know to have to like constantly kind of fight for that, like this is right. No, I'm I'm sure this is right. Uh, is always a, a battle that I always have, uh, in particular with actors most often. Uh, because they often have very strong opinions on what is correct and what is accurate that may or may not be aligned with history. Um, 
but obviously it's important to take everyone's concern into account. Uh, so it's a rather diplomatic kind of conversation <laughs> that has to happen. That's your thing. Uh, done this what show you, were, before. you were saying earlier about like, you try to start as real as possible, but sometimes you just have to make things theatrical. So. Yeah. yeah. And to, to try to explain that to everyone really is, is always a, a conversation that needs to happen. Um, and when that conversation happens in the process is, you know, how smooth is the show going? <laughs> it's, um, so it's, it's always interesting. There's a whole bunch of unique challenges and skills that I've had to acquire that I never even imagined would be part of this job. Um, so it's, it's always a whirlwind. And because of that, I try not to plan too far in the future because this career is so volatile. And it's impossible to plan. So I just have been kind of rolling with it. Um, but definitely working at East West has been extremely valuable, as you said, for um, broadening my cultural horizons, so to speak. Um, and realizing <laughs> just how much work needs to be done uh, for diversity in theater. Uh, it's, it's rather extraordinary how far behind we are <laughs> yeah. in terms of representation. Yeah, which is very true. So sad, but yeah, very true. And East West Players does a lot of, um, well, they're East West Players, so they do a lot of Asian American. Um, they are the premier National Asian American theater. <laughs> yeah, but not all of their stuff is just Asian American, but they do stretch it more than, say, you know, the Pantages is definitely not doing a lot of things that East West Players is doing. Uh, which is great because it gives more people uh, another place to go. It's not just, hey, what's the top hot famous thing out there right now, but actually makes you think or try to understand something or, yeah. I, Definitely. I think I've wanted to work with them for a while before they called for Allegiance and I was like, yes, wait, what show? Yes, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> in, in particular, a lot of the work that they do is not specific cultural work, but is like you know roles that Asians would never really be considered for for instance when we did next to normal you know that that's always been a white family in every production of it that I've ever heard of um and for an Asian family to to embody that role adds this whole other layer of meaning onto it in particular mental illness in the Asian American community, stigma of not being good enough academically or, you know, all of that that comes with it um, is interesting. And it's why it's important to cast these, cast these roles. I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's important to just try, just, just let it, let it happen. Let <laughs> It's, yeah, it's something I'm it's, very passionate about and don't really have the words to express about it. And everyone at East West is very comfortable talking about all this. And they've had a lot more practice than I have. Um, but the work they do is very important. And I'm, I'm so proud to be working with them, really. And I hope to do more of that. Yeah, I think it's great, though, when I because I've always heard of East West players. And so I figured it was mostly Asian people working there. And then I get there and it's not just Asian people. I mean, you and I are white and they right. completely accept it's not like, oh, my God, you can't work here because you're not Asian. We're only doing Asians. It's completely open to any gender, color, race, whatever, uh, which I think is also great because, yeah, just because I'm white doesn't mean I just want to do white theater. 
Like, I thought Allegiance was amazing. I've wanted to see it for years. And I think it's great that mm-hmm. it's just so inclusive of everybody. They just also are pushing to have Asian cultural and people and, you know, represented more because it's just not really out there much. And it is a huge yeah. community. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because when they first approached me to do props for them, I was extremely close to saying no because I, you know, I felt guilty about occupying that space that could have gone to an Asian designer. Um, And I think that is the source of a lot of my, you know, passion for telling these stories accurately, because, you know, if I'm going to have that job, um, instead of someone who has lived, lived that experience, I better do my damn hardest to honor that, um, and to tell these stories that need to be told. Um, and, you know, just do as best I possibly can, you know, don't, don't phone anything in. Um, yeah. don't whitewash everything. Cause that's just too exactly. common in the world. Yeah. And so much of it happens without even conscious thought. There's been a few props that I've put. Um, especially in, in those, in those first few shows, I put things on stage that I I never really thought twice about, um, and was corrected. Thank God, uh, by the East West player staff, um, in terms of like, you know, well, actually that would be this, or actually, you know, you have to really consider the implications of this. Um, so it's definitely been extremely helpful in approaching all shows, not just East West with that kind of mindset that everything, every detail has to be considered. Um, and it's why things like the phone cord and the IV bother me so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not even a cultural thing. That's just period, you know, time period things. <laughs> you know, which is why I didn't even look it up because I was like, oh, thank goodness. It's not something specifically Japanese. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the things you thought were the easy things are the ones that you get called out on. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I find like the most intimidating, but also most rewarding about props is all the tiny little details that's in everything, um, which is why it scares the hell out of me. And I will, it's like one of the few jobs I never want to ever do again because it is so detail oriented, you know? Um, but at the same time, when you have a really good props master, it just, I think is the one thing that kind of like pulls the whole show together. Cause you could have like an amazing set and amazing costumes and amazing lights, but then if the props just don't quite work, it you know it kind of like ruins the whole show because that's the stuff that the the performers are picking up and using and are connecting to the most. So yeah. I love I love good props people, and also because I hate doing props myself, I really try to spoil them because <laughs> I know it's such a difficult job and it's so intimidating. <laughs> well, thank you very much for saying that. <laughs> so, Glenn, if you um, ever you want to do opera, we'll just send you out to wherever state Cindy's in. <laughs> <laughs> Done it, it scares me. <laughs> um, I feel like good prop people are hard to find because it is so intimidating. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. I, I never really considered it that difficult until I started doing more of it and realized everything that goes into it. Um, and it is, it is challenging, but it's also extremely rewarding, particularly for me. Um, the strange thing about props is that, as you said, if you notice that they're bad, it will take you completely out of the show. Yeah. Um, and really, if I've done my job right, you won't notice anything that I've done. Right. Um, 
That's exactly what I say my job is. What do you do? I was like, if you know what I do, then I didn't do it right. I do everything behind the scenes that nobody's supposed to pay attention to. Yeah. And that is the the great frustration of of all, you know, tech people in theater, I think. Um, In particularly for for props, though, because as you said, everything is supposed to just kind of blend in and support, support, support. Um, And even if you have a prop that you've put too much effort into if it is noticed for that reason it's bad Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because then the then the prop is the focus and if it's not like specifically a sight gag that shouldn't be the focus of the scene right Um, so it's a it's a fine little tightrope to walk it was just making me think about this like i guess it's not really a meme well yeah it was um, the Al Bundy show, you, you know, where he was like reading and he always had a newspaper and then what's the show that he's on now or was on a few years ago? Um, that same actor and oh, there's yeah, a picture the of him newspaper. reading like the exact same newspaper from 20 years ago, you know, and that's not like one thing that they've pulled out and has now gone all over the internet because that props person was just like, I'll take this newspaper from storage, you know, and you don't even pay attention to the fact that they just used it. Uh-huh. So I know when I was a director of production at a company, we, because we had such a large storage area um, and we were trying to create new shows, we were trying to be very particular about like, well, we can't use this dining room set because we just had it on stage last season. Mm-hmm. And the audience is going to know that we just used this on stage last season. So we have to not use that on stage again. There is a love seat at East West Players that has been used in at least 15 productions, according right. to senior staff. It's like every show, you just re- reupholster it or something. Yeah, no, the same, the same. Exact- oh, don't, don't do anything to it. <laughs> it's because it's one of those like, you know, shitty living room couches with like pastel chevrons in it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's very invisible and innocuous and completely perfect for everything. And the right. style is minimalist enough that it's not like oh this is definitely a turn of the century it's like no this is a couch that could go over a couple generations the eponymous couch that (laughs) it just is Mm -hmm. um and we we have to make conscious decisions to not use it for things when if it's in your stock you're just so used to seeing it you know and if if you work with directors who know your stock they're like oh yeah you have that couch in stock just pull it out so and that is the argument to be made for clearing your stock every few years um yeah especially you know chairs bentwood chairs oh my god i i trashed all of our bentwood chairs when i was at (laughs) tri-cities because they were all falling apart and so one day i pulled in my stage manager i was like we are going through this mess up here so her job was to like bounce on every chair and if it broke we tossed it and we got rid of more than half of our chairs (laughs) and this girl only weighs like 100 pounds and so we're like if you can't sit on it, then I'm not putting an opera singer on it. So she just, she was so excited. It was, it was pretty funny, but yeah, we just got rid of it. Cause I'm like, there's no point if these chairs aren't going to support anybody or if they're completely falling apart or if they don't have matches, you know, like, why am I keeping them? Especially like you're in New York. Well, sometimes you live in New York and in LA, we just don't have space for things. And so when I clean out areas and I'm like, if I can buy this for under a hundred dollars or make it in two hours, then I'm not keeping it. Because I don't have room to keep everything. It's just not possible to keep everything. Um, Very wise decision, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't need all of this. So you you just have to clear things out. Otherwise, you run out of room for things. And then you have to get rid of things you really like because you just don't have room. Yeah. It's a constant battle with space and time and money and what gets kept and, and what gets tossed. on the other side of that, if you have something that's like super valuable, 
often I won't let it go into stock because it'll just get ruined and scratched and all sorts of things. So I'll sell those. So- oh, smart. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. If I it, usually if I have to buy like a mid-century modern, I we had to buy um, a whole end table coffee table set for Johan, um, and they were beautiful. And we put them into stock, and I went back a week later, and it had a huge scratch down the center of it. Uh. Uh, so I pulled them all immediately, and I'm like, they're mine. I'll take care of them for now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel that way about, you know, old time radios or something. I'm like, oh, I don't want it to sit there because you're just going to ruin it. Getting that radio in my house was heartbreaking. (laughs) They had to gut it. Completely gut it. Yeah. There's some Uh, things I'm like, I can't do. Yeah, that's a heartbreaking part of the job, honestly, is destroying something that is historic. Like those Life magazines had to Mm -hmm. be all kind of cut apart and pasted and reinforced and all that. Um... And those those are those are actual life magazines from 1943. Uh, just because in in the off chance that it flips open on stage, you don't want you know an yeah, advertisement for L'Oreal. It's- I mean, I was, every time that magazine came out on stage, that's exactly what I was looking for because yeah. I was like, how how much detail did they put into this? You know, that, like that is a magazine from 1942. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's the special GI issue actually. Wow, to read through every ad is war themed, every article is war themed, everything is for the soldiers. It's super weird. I hope you, did you uh, only have scanned one, every page have... of that. <laughs> we had three. They were all from kind of the same year, I think. Uh, and one, one was uh, broken over the span of the show. So yeah. we ended up in a total of three, I think. Because um, one is the modern magazine that's supposed to be brand spanking new. And one is the one that he pulls out at the end that's gone through 70 years. Um, oh, right. Long it's right. been. Yeah. So that was that was a really fun prop to make, actually, um, in particular yeah. because it got to be George's prop. So naturally, I put like hours and hours into it, making it perfect. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's funny because the the ending one has to have um, supposedly his writing from his father on it that says "Watoshi no Hero, My Hero." Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Heartbreaking. Um, nope, this is starting <laughs> of the crying. And it's. It's funny because I had George write the first one, uh, and then for the replacement, I ended up writing it, and I gave it to him. And he said, "Who, who, who wrote this?" I'm like, "Oh, I did." He's like, "You, you did? You, you wrote the Japanese?" I'm like, "Yes, yes, I, yes, I copied yours." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those moments like that are really valuable to me when, when you know, actors or directors or public or anyone, you know, it's, it's nice to be acknowledged. You know, if they notice my work, I've done a bad job, but it's nice to be appreciated as I'm sure you understand. <laughs> Usually it comes from actors cause they actually are the ones looking at it and they're like, Oh wow, mm-hmm. you you made this I'm like, yep. <laughs> there's a little, uh, there's a photo of Hannah, the nurse uh, mm-hmm. that Sammy pulls out in battle and it's never seen to the audience, but of course I had to make the real thing. Um, and Hannah ended up liking it so much that she requested, uh, a copy, like full blown up for her family to give away as gifts. So that was actually very sweet. I, I saw uh, that because, so yeah, I never saw it from the audience, but working backstage, I saw it, uh, during strike and I was like, oh my God, it's a black and white of her in her costume with the fuzzed out sides in the oval. I was like, oh man, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> it was adorable. Um, and ultimately it goes back to, you know, it's, it's for Sammy. You know, I want him to look at that picture and see her, you know, um, 
it's funny. He had a birthday over the run of the show. Um, and for that day, we uh, put one of his old modeling shots as the photo. <laughs> 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 so just shirtless him posing. Did he notice it before he pulled it out on stage or... No, that was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's also the fun part. Once in a while, if, if I think an actor is capable of handling a joke, I'll I'll do that. Um, that was actually a, a idea from the PAs. They were very very clever in that. Um, so it's it's nice. <laughs> it just brings yeah, a little the love. The PAs were pretty. I love funny. that you you specify if I if there's an actor who can deal with it. So I'm glad that you don't just do that to everybody. Cause there's so many people no, that like couldn't no. deal with it. Or... There are very many actors who would throw a fit and for good yeah. reason, you know, I, and I totally get that. Cause if, if I am... you're like in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely it's a, it's a case by case, but <laughs> yeah. Just like Only dancing in the wings or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so we're about at an hour. So the final question, oh my God, which really? I know exactly. So it's like we start Twice with how'd you get into theater and then it just goes, people. Well, Andy's <laughs> ended up being two hours because Andy just had so much to say that we had to break. We couldn't get Andy to two. stop talking. Yeah, he just kept going. That shocks me, really. Andy's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so our last question, which we didn't give you a ton of time to prep, but do you have any twin stories? Uh, doesn't have to be theater related, but any... Any fun twin stories? Twins you knew, twins you worked with, twins on stage. Well, my mother is a twin, actually. Nice! Identical yes. or fraternal? And actually, yeah, um, she is a fraternal twin. Uh, her brother's name was Glenn. Um, <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually, uh, it's a long time ago, so it's okay, but a long time ago he passed away when they were two. Um, it was very oh, wow. tragic and it's something that stuck with her for a long time. And so that's why I'm named Glenn in honor of him. Um, so that's, that's where I come from. <laughs> I, yeah. We, Cindy and I, we, my overarching twin story. We What's can't that? imagine, uh, losing a twin. Like, I don't know how people deal with that. Yeah. I cannot imagine. Um, thankfully, you know, she was young enough to really not have that kind of perception yet. Or um, didn't have like fifty years of of memories with that person before, beforehand. But it's yeah. funny because you know she often tells me you know that sometimes she feels like there's some part missing, mm-hmm. um, and I really feel like that's a common thing I hear from twins a lot. That you know part of your personality lives in the other person. Um, yeah, they were yeah. fraternal, but definitely for identical because uh, fraternal twins are. No more similar than, you know, just brother or sister, but identical twins have the same DNA. Like we started as one and split at some point within the first one or two weeks. So, yeah, definitely. Even though she was fraternal, I mean, you're in there for however, you know, nine months or so together. Yeah, that would be really hard. Well, sorry for your mom's loss even a long time ago, but yeah, losing a twin. Are there any other twins in your family? It usually, it has a tendency to skip generations in my family, um, as far back as I can tell. So it's like my, my mom was a twin and my great grandmother was a twin. Um, and it, it follows that way with my mom's siblings as well. Uh, it, like they, they had singles and then that single had a twin. So who knows what would happen if I biologically had children? Um, <laughs> 
perhaps that is coded in there somewhere. Um, but it's all probably just a coincidence. But in, in Kai's family, my husband's family, they have uh, twins and mm-hmm. fraternal twins. And it seems to they you don't skip generations, though. They have them like every generation, but somebody along mm-hmm. the line has a twin where Sydney and I are identical. And so there are no other twins in our family genetically, though, coincidentally, my mom's stepmom was a twin, but no genetics there. But it's just weird how, yeah, identical. Yeah, it's weird how that works out. Freaks of nature. I ended up, <laughs> I'm just now remembering this. I ended up dating some twins. Uh, you said twins like you did it at the same time? No, one right after the other. Uh, <laughs> That's not a little awkward, Glenn. Good job. No, 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 no. Um, I met them both at the same time, and uh, I tried things out with one, and then that didn't work out, so I tried things out with the other. <laughs> it was, that and was my undergrad. Still- you have to forgive me. That was my so my wild oats days. <laughs> I wonder how that worked, because if the twins were, like most twins, they were, they were talking identical. to each other. Interesting. Yeah, they were, they were identical, and it was a source of great contention between them. <laughs> so, I'm glad I never had to deal with that. <laughs> I just I just come in and stir the pot and just watch. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> and then walk away. <laughs> they were That's very funny. I do love your twin sways, and I, I think it's awesome that you dated one and then dated the other, because... Dating is a loose term for the first one. So don't think that I'm like a homewrecker. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, yeah, saw once or twice <laughs> one, then went to the other. <laughs> well, we'll just see how that goes. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Okay, so I think we're uh, about an hour on this podcast. Thank you, Glenn. It was great talking to you about prop stories and allegiance and all that. Um, it has okay. been my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I'm sure I'll work on shows at East West Players again. I think Andy's going to bring me in to uh, help build the next show. So perfect. Oh, wonderful. And okay. I'll see you then. Because of you making limoncello, I have started a batch of limoncello today. So we'll compare and oh, see goodness. what we think. With all 30 lemons that I have on my counter. Yeah. I- <laughs> okay. We'll get to that because I started one and we'll compare in a couple months, see how it's yeah. going. This is my first batch, so I'm not sure exactly how it's going to turn out. Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Glenn. All Thanks, right. Glenn. Bye. <laughs> Take Bye. Care, thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.